What do you consider to be the most valuable thing in your life? I mean, what, what do you consider to be the most valuable thing that you cherish it the most? Now, hopefully, most of us would say our family, you know, not our truck or anything like that, things that can be replaced. But, hey, you know, with, sometimes it's my truck, amen? But what is the most valuable thing in your life? Well, what is the most valuable personal quality that you feel you possess? What do you think your greatest attribute is? Now, according to the writer of Hebrews, the most important thing in your life is your faith. Of course, we've been seeing for the last couple weeks that faith is the belief, and it's the, the belief that God is as God has revealed himself in the scriptures, and that following God is worth it. That obeying God is worth any trials and tribulations and struggles and, and stresses that we may go through. That God is who he says he is. And even in the good times and even in the bad times and even in the, the heartbreak of life, following God is worth everything that, it's, that we have to go through. With faith, the writer says, without faith, the writer says, you will never be able to please God. He is saying, if you don't have true God-pleasing faith, then you will never fully commit to a life of obeying God and a life of following God. You will never make it through the dark times of your life without faith. Now, of course, remember the group, the writer, he is, he is speaking to a group of believers who are struggling in their Christian faith. They're struggling in their walk with God because Christianity has gotten too hard for them. Following God has gotten too hard for them. They've, they're being persecuted. They have friends or loved ones who have been arrested and beaten and some, some killed for their faith and their walk with God. They are struggling with unanswered prayers. They're looking at their life and all the, the trials and tribulations and they're, they're praying to God to, to take away the pain, to take away the troubles. And it seems like God is ignoring them and so they're, they're struggling with, why doesn't God answer me? And if we're honest, we've all been there from time to time where we've got an issue that we don't understand and we pray to God to take it away and God is seemingly silent and like, why is, why is God not listening? I thought God loved me. I thought I was his child. Why won't he help me and do this? And so they're, they're struggling with their Christianity. They're barely hanging on. And in chapter number 12, the writer of Hebrews, of course, God gives us four helps to strengthen our faith during difficult times. So we're going to look at that this evening. Look at Hebrews chapter 12, starting in verse number 1. It says, Wherefore, seeing we are also compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Now this illustration that the writer is giving about a race, it's, it's an illustration we can all identify with. He is saying the Christian life is a marathon. Anyone ever tried to run a marathon? You know why? Because it's hard. And it's stupid. Who wants to run for that far? What is chasing you that long? You have to run that long that you can't get help. I mean, come on. So, but the, it's, he's given, he's equated it to a marathon. The word race here is the Greek word agon. We get our English word agony from it. It's a, it's a means a contest, a struggle. 
The word was used in other literature. It was used to describe the pentathlon that was prominent in Roman times. And during the pentathlon, there were five events that these contestants, these athletes would have to go through. And it, it was four events of running and swimming. They would have to run and then swim for a while and then run a different race and then swim. And then when they got out the second time swimming, they would have to go into a gladiator ring and they would fight each other until, sometimes to the death. And so they'd come in exhausted, worn out, physically drained, and they would put on these leather gloves. Now, the leather gloves were designed to protect their hands, but it destroyed your opponent's faces. It was, a, it was an agonizing event. It was a terrible thing to go through. It was, the writer is telling us that the Christian life is hard. That's encouraging, ain't it? Writer saying, hey, you're going to walk with Jesus, you're going to feel like you get beat to death with somebody with leather gloves on. And that's where some of, some of us are tonight. We're in difficult times. Maybe it's a difficult time with our finances. Maybe it's a relational issue. Maybe it's a health issue. Maybe we're just struggling in our walk with God. And sometimes we can't even understand why. Our life's going well. Everybody's healthy. Everybody's happy. Things are going great. But you're just you're struggling to walk with God. You read your Bible and you, you don't get anything out of it. You pray and you don't feel like God's hearing you. You come to church and worship and you sing the songs and maybe even raise your hand, but you don't really, you don't really feel the Spirit moving you. And serving God has become difficult. You thought the Christian life would be rainbows and the abundant life, and now it's, it's hard. Now it's painful. And so the writer of Hebrews gives us four motivations to keep us going when the Christian life gets difficult. To keep us going when our walk with God becomes hard. To keep us going when we, we honestly sometimes just want to give up. And so we're going to look at them tonight. Here's the first one. The first motivation to keep going, he says, number one, consider the witness. Again, in verse number one, he says, Wherefore, seeing also, we are come about with so great a cloud of witnesses. Now that, that word wherefore is translated other places in the Bible as therefore. Now, when you're reading your Bible and you come across the word therefore, what are you supposed to do? Go back and see what it's there for. It's meant to point you back to what was previously said to kind of really drive the point home. And so it's meant to point you back to give clarity in hand. So in this case, the writer is pointing backwards to Hebrews chapter 11. The list, what we call the the hall of faith and the list of those believers. And he points to all these people who risked everything and many times gave up their life because of the promises of God. Here's how he summarizes the list in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 33. It says, Who through faith subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouth of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, waxed valiant in fight, turned the flight of the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead, raised again to life. And now that's a good list right there. Through faith, man, they conquered cities. They saw walls come crashing down. They saw water parted. They saw the lions stop. They saw, man, their faith was justified and God showed up mightily in their life. But then there's another list. And others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain better resurrection. Others had trial of cruel mockings and scourgings, yea, moreover of bonds and imprisonments. They were stoned, they were sawn asunder, 
were tempted, were slain with the sword, were wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And these all, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise. These people, they, they, they died for their faith. They suffered incredibly for their faith. And they didn't have any justification for their faith, humanly speaking, on this side of earth. It says, God, having provided some better thing for us, that they without us should not be made perfect. Now, some of them, through faith, saw God do incredibly powerful things. But other times, they, they died without ever, ever receiving any earthly validation for their faith. Now, these two groups, they, they prayed the same prayers. They served the same God. They had the same faith. But God didn't show up for the second group, or he didn't seem like he showed up for them. Like I said last week, if you require earthly validation for your faith, you're not going to make it in your walk with God. So these people are just like us. You know, we like to think of people in the Bible as these kind of superhuman people. These incredible superheroes of the faith that somehow they had better access to God than we did or more power of the Holy Spirit than we did or, or they had a, a closer way and God just endowed them with special rights and privileges. But they were just like us. They had struggles, they had trials, they had families, they had blessings, they had all these things. Some of them, they received the validation of their faith on earth and some of them, they died wondering, why didn't God show up? Why didn't God stop this when he could have? You know, we think they had no doubts. We think they had all their questions answered, and that's not always the case. I mean, Job. Job's considered one of the three greatest men of faith in the Bible, but he ends up looking at God and saying, God, this makes no sense, and I don't understand why this is happening. I don't understand why you're doing this to me. And you know what God's answer to him was? Well, Job, what I'm doing here is I'm writing a book of Scripture, and I'm trying to show people in generations to come what's going to happen through faith. So, Job, just hold on. I know you don't like it, but no, you know what God told him? God said, Job, until you create your own universe out of nothing, don't question me. Job didn't get any answers. Job didn't get any revelation from God. He didn't get an explanation. He died without ever really understanding what God was doing through his pain. He died not really understanding what God was doing through his suffering. God had gave him a glimpse of his steadfast love and infinite power. He got revelation, but he didn't get explanation. We get the explanation. We can look back at Job and say, man, that was horrible, but man, look, look how it turned out for him. Look what God, Job didn't get an explanation. God didn't come down to Job and say, hey, Job, uh, me and Satan were having a talk in heaven, and it's, it's, it's going to get bad for you, bro, but just, just hang on. I've got a plan. It's going to be good. God just told him, Job, don't question me. Just by faith, serve me. These Old Testament saints, they are like people in a marathon who have started before us, and now they stand along the sidelines as we're running our race, telling us, keep going, it's worth it, you're going to make it. That's the cloud of witnesses that we can look back to. All these saints before us that have died, trusting God and died in faith, and some of them had their, they understood what was going on, and they saw God show up, and some of them had no idea why. But they're in heaven now looking at us saying, hey, we can tell you it's worth it. Just keep serving God. They're saying, 
I know it doesn't make sense now. It didn't to us either. But you can see now, through all of our trials, that God was working even when we didn't understand. God was bringing something out of us far beyond what we could see. He was bringing Christ to earth through us. We couldn't see it then, but we see it now. We stand as witnesses to you that God is working in your pain now, just like he worked through ours, bringing to pass a greater plan than you realize. The first help of our faith is the witnesses that went before us, but here's the second. Strength of our faith. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Look at verse number two. <clears throat> Looking unto Jesus. The author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. In the Greek, the word there, looking, means to turn your eyes off of one thing and fix them on something else. It's like if you're, you're talking to someone the right in front of you and you shift your eyes off of them and look at what's going on behind them. He's saying, turn your eyes from what you're looking at and fix them on Jesus. When you're struggling, when you're in pain, don't look at the trials. Don't look at the tribulations. Don't look at the struggles and the pain and the confusion. Look past them at what Jesus is doing through your pain. We're, not to, we're to look out of our pain and out of our darkness to two things about Jesus. The first thing we're supposed to look at, we're supposed to look at his promises. So it's looking at Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Jesus is the one who started us in our relationship with him, and he's the one who's going to complete it. He's the completer of our faith. Jesus is the one who started the work in us, and he's the one that's going to finish it. See, the cross shows us how much Jesus has invested in you. When you buy a house, you oftentimes have to put down something called earnest money. It's money for whatever the price you and the seller agree to, that it is money that you put down to show them how serious you are about buying the house. And you agree, hey, if everything goes through and the contract is filled out and the inspection's fine, then this is, we are committing to buy this house. And if everything goes the way it's supposed to and you back out of the deal, you lose the money. The seller gets to keep it because you made a commitment, you put down some money, and if you don't keep your word, you lose it. It's money. Uh, Jesus has invested his blood and his life in you. He's got more invested in your life than you do. He has invested in you, and he will complete the process. So when we want to give up on ourselves, God does it. He's going to continue to work through us. The cross shows us how committed he is to see it through. It takes the pressure off of us. It takes the pressure off of us from having to please God and, and do everything right. Because he started working in us and he will finish what we started. All we have to do is walk with him and allow him to work through us. You are running a race that's already been won. Of course you can get up. Of course you can keep going. Of course you can finish. Jesus has already run the race for you. He's already provided assurance of the victory, and he's given us the power 
to get there. God, who has infinite power, God, who brought Jesus' dead, lifeless body back from the grave, is working inside of us. He can bring your life back from the ashes. The first thing we look for are his promises and the truth that he will keep his word and he will finish what he started in us. But the second thing we're supposed to look for is found in verse number three. It says, look at Jesus, for consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye being weary, faint in your minds. We're to look to Jesus at his promises, but also his experience. Look at the hostility that Jesus had to endure on earth. Even before the crucifixion, the, the mockings, the, the people trying to plot against him, the people ridiculing him, I believe in him. He couldn't even go to his own hometown because whenever he would go to preach there, they would mock him and, and make fun of him and say, oh, that's a carpenter's son. He, we don't need to trust him or believe anything in him. There were a lot of hateful critiques about Christians and those of us who choose to live our life according to the Bible. People say we're ignorant because we believe that a personal Intelligent God created everything and rules the universe. Christopher Hitchens said this, Religion should be treated with ridicule, hatred, and contempt. Sam Harris says, The problem with Christianity is that it allows people to believe in mass what only idiots and lunatics could believe in isolation. Man, that's, a, that's a good critique of us. Richard Dawkins says that Christians are guilty of child abuse. That we teach our children, what we teach our children is worse than sexual abuse and we need to have our children taken away from us. The New York Times wrote an editorial saying that we are hateful people because we believe what God says about right and wrong. Jesus told his disciples, if they hate me, imagine how they're going to hate you. So the author says, look to Jesus the cross shows you that he's committed to seeing things through. The resurrection shows you that he is able to see it through. The cross shows you that the pain you are experiencing now is expected, but don't lose heart because God only brings the power of the resurrection through the pain of the cross. So look to Jesus. There are some, some who are about to give up. Don't do it. Jesus says he's already won the race. You need to get up. And let him finish his race through you. This helps us, helps us our faith. We can, the helps of our faith are considered the witness to look to Jesus. And then number, the third one is found in Hebrews chapter 12. Look at verse number 5 through 7. And ye, having forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children, my son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If he endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? Then look down at verse number 11. Now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterwards it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. Wherefore, lift up the hands which hang down and the feeble knees. So what's the third thing we need to do? Third, we need to trust the sovereignty of God. Now there are actually two metaphors being used in these, these verses. The mes first me metaphor is that of a coach. The word exercise in verse number 11 is the Greek word gymnasio. You know what word we get from that? Gymnasium. There's a sense that God is working us like a coach. 
The way you grow a muscle is by breaking it down. But after you break it down, your body rebuilds it to make it stronger. But while that muscle's being rebuilt, it's sore. It's tender. So here's the thing. When, you, when you're being worked out, you don't feel stronger. You feel like you're going to die. Last year, me and April, we, we joined the, the Green Ridge and uh, the Green Ridge, not the Green Ridge, the, uh, the RAC, the Roanoke Athletic Center, which is now Carillion. And one of the things we did is they gave each of us five sessions with a personal trainer. And so I went, my personal trainer was Nick. And so I met with Nick. And I'd meet with him a couple times a week. And so I met with him the first time and we went through a routine and it was fine. And then the rest of the week I did it myself. And then next week we met and he kind of altered it and it was good. And then the third week, I got there, and he's like, so how you feeling? I'm like, well, I've been doing this, you know, every routine for the all week. I feel pretty good. He's like, good, we're going we're gonna to pump it up a little bit more. We're going to go a little harder. And I was like, okay, great. And uh, that day, I thought I was going to die. I literally, when I got home, I threw up. I worked out so hard. I was just like, this guy's going to kill me. I don't know what I ever did to him. I've always been nice to him. But, what, I mean... Afterward, you know, it's like, man, you're, you're working hard to get stronger, but while you're being worked out, you feel like you're going to die. It doesn't feel good, but it is for our good. But you are getting stronger. It's the same with God. The muscles of your faith will never grow if they're not tested and broken down. And it doesn't always make sense to us. Just, just because it's not your plan, though, doesn't mean it's not a good plan. You've got a good coach who is at work in all things, working for your good and molding you into the image of God. So your pain right now in your life is God's good plan for your life to mold you into his image and to increase your faith. He's tearing you down in your strength so he can rebuild you up in his, which leads to the second metaphor. He uses the metaphor of a coach, but then he uses the metaphor of a father. <laughs> the word used for chastening is a, is a, is a word, it means padia, which is, comes, we get from the word pediatric. It is, has to do with how a good father disciplines a child. A good father. A good father doesn't beat a child to punt to hurt him. That's not what discipline's about. A good father disciplines his child for wrongdoing, not to pay them back for their wrongdoing, but to build their character. It's not punishment because they did wrong. It's discipline to teach them to do right. When you discipline a child, you're not trying to avenge the wrong that they did. As a parent, you're supposed to discipline a child only to build their character. Your discipline is supposed to be out of love. Now, you may discipline them in a way that wounds them, but your goal isn't retribution. It is the building of their character. Now, the author goes on to say in verses 8, 9, and 10 that no parent disciplines perfectly. And look, none of us do. We, we've got the rule in our house that we never spank our children out of anger. That means I've never been mad when I didn't know. Sometimes I've, I've been mad because they've been stupid. And so nobody's perfect. Sometimes now they've gotten a little old for that. So now it's just, you know, I'll, I'll blow up and oh, you're grounded from your stuff for a year. Now that's a little excessive and it's not perfect. None of us discipline perfectly, but we're not God. God is a perfect father. 
So his anger toward his children is never an anger of justice to be served. It is discipline out of love. So here's what that means. If you are a believer... God is never paying you back for your sins or the hardships of life. I've heard too many believers, uh, something will happen, they'll get cancer. Now look, if you get cancer because you've smoked for 40 years and you get lung cancer, that's not the discipline of God because that's just science, all right? But I've heard too many people like, oh, my, my, I got this sickness and it's because I did this sin years ago and God's punishing me. That's, that's not how God works. God's not punishing you for sins because here's the thing. When Jesus died on the cross... He took all the punishment for all your sins. So if God were to punish you for your sins now, he's punishing the same sin twice, and that's unjust, and God can't be unjust. So the hardships we go through, you know, a lot of times we don't do it with ourselves, we do it with other people. Some other Christian will go through a hard time and will say, wonder what they've done wrong in their life. Nothing. God doesn't punish us that way. Now, he does discipline us. He does use our sins to discipline us, to correct us, to bring us back. But don't think when you have hardships or someone else has hardships, oh, it's some sin in their life has finally caught up with them. To the believer, God is committed to growing you up in him. And a lot of times he uses pain and disappointment to do it. God's love is a fatherly love. It's a tough love. It's a love that forges our character and grows us into maturity. And all the things that God, all things God has disciplined you as a son and daughter, he is using them for your good. God never disciplines to punish us, to, to, to just smite us. He does it to encourage us and strengthen us and build us up. And that's important in developing faith because it means that everything, and that means that in everything, God is at work forging your character. So how do we grow our character during difficult times? We need to consider the witness, fix our eyes on Jesus, trust God's sovereignty, and then finally, focus on the joy. Again, looking back to verse number 12. Looking into Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, for the joy that we set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of God. Now, what was it that held Jesus to the cross? Was it the nails? No, he raised the dead, he calmed storms, he walked through walls. He could have easily gotten down but out of the nails. What held him to the cross was the joy that awaited him on the other side of it. The joy of what? Well, think about it. What would he obtain after the cross that he didn't have before the cross? The approval of God? No, he already had the approval of God. The kingship of the universe, it's already his. The adoration of the angels, he said that from eternity past. The one thing that Jesus would get after the cross that he didn't have before, which is why he could go to the cross with joy, the one thing he got was you. The one thing he gained by enduring the pain and the suffering of the cross was reconciliation with mankind. He did all this to save you. We are his inheritance. The joy of reconciling you and me to himself, he endured that cross. So, if Christ felt that way about you, doesn't it, that he, he, he was willing to do that about for you, G, the author says, if and Jesus could endure the cross, if he could take the shame, because he knew that through this, he would receive relationship with you, can't we endure 
some of the hardships of life, looking to the joy that all of this, everything we go through, is for our good and for His glory. See, people of faith are supposed to be joy-driven. That's the biggest difference between religion and those who are transformed by the gospel. People who have been transformed by the gospel are driven by the joy of knowing and pleasing the one who gave up everything to save them. Look to the joy of serving Jesus. The Christian life is hard. And if we're honest, it's difficult to follow Jesus and, and trust him when things don't seem to be going our way. But God, through Hebrews chapter 12, gives us four things we need to do to grow our faith in difficult times. We need to consider the witness. Those who have gone before us, who some of them had their faith validated, some of them didn't, but they stand in heaven today saying it was worth everything. Trust the sovereign, fix our eyes on Jesus. Stop looking at your pain and look past it to him. Trust the sovereignty of God and focus on the joy that's on the other side of the pain. God's given us four ways to grow our faith in hard times. Let's pray.